We're going deeper underground. There's too much panic in this town. Welcome to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. And this episode, we're going to be looking at the Smurf Neblin or Deep Gnomes. Okay, so as I said before the intro, we're going to be looking at the Smurf Neblin, the Deep Gnomes, and I'm aware that's probably not how you pronounce it, but that's how I say it, so I'm just going to stick with that for this episode. So they first appear in the Fiend Folio for 1st edition AD&D, and I can see you've got the page open there, love, so what does it say about Deep Gnomes in the Fiend Folio? Far beneath the surface of the earth dwell the Sphirf Nebli, deep gnomes. A race related to the gnomes of the bright world, small parties roam here and there, always in search of gem minerals, which seems to be an ongoing theme. Okay. So, they live in caves, only males have ever been seen. I'm going to suspect that that gets changed pretty quickly later on. They're doughty fighters... And for every four encountered, there'll be an additional leader type. If there's more than 20, there'll be an additional fighter, who's a burrow warden. Okay. With an additional... With two level five assistants, and it's 25% probable that one of those assistants will have illusionist abilities. Well, that makes sense. Kind of standard gnomes tend to have illusionist abilities in D&D, so... Mm-hmm. So, they've got a few abilities. Uh, the stuff that you'd expect for underground living creatures, things like infravision. Yeah. They also have the blindness, blur, and change self abilities, which they can basically use for camouflage purposes. Is there any limit on how often they can use that, or...? Uh can be used once per day. Okay. Uh, talks a bit about their armour, uh, which is mithril steel over fine chainmail. Mithril. Uh, they're carrying pickaxes. Makes sense. Standard. You know, miners and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, they move very fast. They move very quietly. They're all magic resistant. And they have their own language like their own version of gnomish but they also have this sort of like empathetic communication with their comrades like with their clan members oh okay uh it doesn't define that it just says they communicate by a form of racial empathy when outside their own domains (laughs) oh that's quite interesting Mm mm-hmm and see there it says they can also communicate with like elemental earth creatures which makes yeah. sense and the description of them very much reminds me of the description of Gollum in the Tolkien books and the picture here looks quite a bit like the 70s Gollum I've, I've got me I'm looking at that picture and I'm thinking it's just like a goblin with a pickaxe I'm not going to lie it kind of does which I suppose yeah Gollum it's quite goblinoid, isn't it? You know, in some you know. representations. <laughs> it's a gnome. Yeah. It's yeah, not it's holding a fishing rod and wearing a silly red hat, so yeah. we'll call it a win. 
Okay, so the next time the Smurf Nebulon appear is in the second ad, AD&D Monster Manual. And there's just one page for gnomes in this book, and it's split down into the different sort of subcategories. But each of them gets like a couple of paragraphs just like describing differences. So the, the deep gnomes they're described as living in hidden cities riddled with little passages they keep the locations hidden to protect them from drow mine flares and the like slightly smaller than rock gnomes they have thin wiry gnarled frames but they're quite strong they have rock colored skin medium brown to brownish gray their eyes are gray male smurf nebulin are completely bold Whereas females have stringy grey hair. So obviously by the time second editions rolled around, the females have been discovered. <laughs> the average lifespan is 250 years. They have mining teams and patrols that work together so smoothly that to outside of observers, they appear to communicate with each other by some form of racial empathy. Now that's interesting because mm -hmm. that's suggesting that they might not have a racial empathy but it looks that way to outsiders. So that, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Gives you a bit of scope to like play with that if you want to. Again, they speak their own dialect of gnomish. 60% um, likely and another gnome will understand it. And they're also able to converse in underworld common. Um, most of them understand a bit of Kuotuan and Drow. Can still converse with any creature from the elemental plane of Earth via a curious language consisting solely of vibrations. They all have the innate ability to cast blindness, blur, and change self once a day. They also radiate a non-detection spell, identical to the spell of the same name. They have 120-foot improvision, as well as all the detection abilities of rock gnomes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's pretty much what we have about deep gnomes in the second ad monster manual. I believe they also appeared in the, the version 3, 3.5 monster manual. Indeed. The description's virtually the same. We've got very similar abilities. Uh, Spell-like ability, one per day, blindness, deafness, blur, disguise self. Yeah. Uh, Non-detection. Obviously, it's third ed, so it's detailing a bit more of like which skills they've got and that kind of stuff. Yeah, as we've said before, like D&D 3, 3.5 is like the system of skills. We've got a note here that a deep gnome who comes within ten feet of unusual stonework can make a search check, can make a search check as though actively searching for traps. Yeah, and I think that's what it's being, it's referring to, and it says they've got similar abilities to the mm -hmm. rock gnome in second edition. It's a bit of a sort of spin on the old dwarfy abilities, isn't it? Yep. I'm just looking since it's all lined up neatly in this one how it compares to the normal gnome. Yeah. Neutral rather than neutral good. Level adjustment plus three rather than plus zero. That'll be because of the magical abilities. And they're a bit tougher, a bit faster, and they've got the magical abilities. Yeah. So we're not gonna do the fourth ed book because it or rather we're gonna do the fourth ed book later. Yeah, because in the in the fourth ed book it's tr certainly in the book that we're looking at, which is called into the unknown they're sort of treated more as a playable character race so there's a lot more details in there they're not sort of just in there as a monster stat block so we are going to come back to that but we're going to skip over that for the moment and go straight to fifth edition where they appear in the monster manual as a more sort of standard monster race 
and it would appear from the artwork in the D&D 5th edition that these stringy, sort of wiry, brownie grey gnomes have now morphed into pudgy little grey goblin creatures. They're described as living far below the surface in twisted warrens and sculpted caverns, grey skin allowing them to blend in with the surrounding stonework. They're surprisingly heavy and strong for their size, which is a bit at odds with the previous one that described them as sort of wiry. Um, a typical Smurf Neblin enclave contains several hundred deep gnomes and is strongly fortified. It describes them as having established gender roles. Mm-hmm. Male Smurf Neblin are bold, white females have stringy hair. The females run the enclaves while males scour the outskirts in search of enemies and deposits of precious gemstones. They cherish fine gemstones, especially rubies, which they hop from mines deep in the Underdark. The hunt for gems often brings them into conflict with beholders, drow, mind flares, etc. Of all their natural enemies, they fear and despise the murderous demon-worshipping drow the most. They're often encountered in the company of creatures from the elemental plane of Earth. Some Smurf Nebling can summon such creatures and Earth creatures guard their settlements. Generally, Zorn enticed to service with the promise of gems to feed on. And looking at the stat block, they get advantage on stealth checks because in stony environments. They get advantage on wisdom and charisma saves against magic because of their gnomish cunning. They've got innate spell casting, the same spells as previous. They're normally armed with what's called a war pick, which is effectively just the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the pickaxe. Um, they have poisoned darts. And that's pretty much it, to be honest, mm. for the fifth ed book. Okay, so we're just going to chat a little bit about them as monsters before we get into the whole like fourth ed playable race thing. And I've got to say that for me personally, and I find this not just about the deep gnomes, but with a lot of the drow races, they they seem to suffer from the fact that like because um, the Underdark was developed slightly later than like your standard D and D environment, your, your wilderness, your mountains, your, your dungeons, da da da. A lot of the a lot of the first Underdark races seem like the designers have looked looked and they were like, oh, we need something to go in the Underdark. Um, well, we'll uh, let's do an Underdark version of elves, drow. Oh, okay. Oh, um, what about dwarves? Um, we can't just say normal dwarves because they're already in like the mountains. Um, deep dwarves in the Underdark. And then they were like, oh, well, what other races have we got? Oh, no- gnomes, deep gnomes. See, I almost feel with these particular ones, like it's almost the other way around, that the above-ground gnomes however you want to refer to them, the rock gnomes, the forest gnomes, the old D&D gnomes are obviously more inspired by your sort of... The grog gnomes. 1950s fishing rod and a red hat gnome. Yeah, yeah. That that sort of, you know... That sort of vibe, yeah. Noddy and big ears, that sort of a feel of gnome. And they've tried to make them a bit sort of darker and nastier to fit into D&D but they still feel a bit sort of cheesy. Whereas these guys, they're mind spirits. They've got these, like, cool camouflage powers. They're not really interested in hurting you unless you're messing with them. They, they feel more like sort of old fairy tales. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that a lot of what would have been traditionally the, like, the role of the gnome in like mythology, so like you say, these mining spirits these sort of like knocker-esque like uh, elemental creatures it strikes me that in sort of traditional D&D a lot of that sort of 
that heavy lifting of that those sort of roles has already been taken on by the dwarves. So, like you say, I think they... And similarly, a lot of it's been taken by the Hobbit and Halfling-type characters. Yes. Because Tolkien... <laughs> yeah. So, I think you're right, they probably did veer slightly to more towards the god and gnome side of the force there. But... Um, like I say, it does seem to me very much that like, when they created the Underdog, they were like, oh, well, we need lots of underground races to go in there. But like all the underground races that already got, like the Dwarves and like the Gnomes, they're already described as being in mountains, not in the Underdog. So they then had to make like an even deeper version of them, which I think works quite well because they're a little bit divorced from the the original idea, so they can play around with this. I mean, let's face it, we've got... I mean elves are the most overused race in in my sort of opinion in like a fantasy world mm-hmm. i mean i can only assume that like back in the day at like tsr someone had like a mad on for elves so it's like any type of terrain there's elves there you got wood elves you got high elves you got elves with wings you can see elves under dark elves whatever you want wherever at you go three like, of them are in tolkien though you can't just blame tsr no no no, no 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 but like some of the weirder <laughs> ones but basically what i'm saying is saying they're supposed to be like an elder like reclusive species like mm-hmm. it barely seems possible you could throw a stone in a fantasy world like without hitting an elf because they're everywhere mm-hmm. but see that's one of the things that's kind of nice about the witcher series because they're using the elves for so many like racial allegories that mm. it makes sense as to why they've been pushed out of the towns, why people don't encounter them very often, because people are massively racist against them. Well, I was <laughs> going to say, one thing I do like about the Deep Gnomes, to bring it back to that, mm. is that a lot of these underdark races, they're just like more evil, like dark versions of the surface, like Drow, evil demon-worshipping elves, mm-hmm. Durgar, grotty, like scrubby dwarves who are like evil. Whereas the the deep gnomes don't actually seem to be that evil. They're, they're just doing their own thing. They're mining their jet. They're a bit greedy and consumed with avarice because, you know, they're trying to gather all these gems and they're motivated by that. But being a little bit selfish and wanting to focus on your own thing, that's not necessarily evil. They just seem, as you were saying earlier, like isolationist. They want to be left on their own, doing their own thing. They're not bothering anybody. They're quite happy. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to bring up about this is these gems that they're always trying to get. Yeah, particularly rubies, it's so. I didn't actually notice where it said anything they were doing with them, apart from possibly summoning Zorn in one of the later editions. Well, yeah, it said that Zorn are like, obviously, like the four-armed sort of burrowing creatures, and they eat gemstones. So it says they bribe some of them to guard their, like, stuff with gems. Well, obviously, not all of their gems... bribing your bodyguards isn't feeding your family feeding your bodyguards isn't feeding your family so is the implication there that they eat the gems Mm. or does some poor deep gnome have to go out every couple of months and flog these gems to someone and get food and bring it back to the colony and it just struck me that that could be like quite an interesting idea to have a story around Maybe your characters have been trading with this guy for a while and then he doesn't turn up and you have to go and look for him. Maybe he gets killed on his mission and you have to go and take the food back to his family. And anything I would say, I like the idea of it, like the sort of trading, but I don't know how well that plays into like the sort of 
the fairly sort of isolationist idea of these um, deep gnomes. But as you say, they've obviously got to get food from somewhere if they're not eating the gems. what else are they doing with these gems if it's not... Well, the, the the generic lazy man answer to like anything or way to get food in underdogs like mushrooms, lichen, like any race that's in the underdog where they mm-hmm. can't be bothered to determine where they get their food from. It's like oh, they grow mushrooms. But again, it went into a fair amount of detail about the society on a couple of them. It mentions that yeah. the women folk are keeping the households, that the men folk are working the mines, that both groups are used for defence of the city. Nowhere does it mention who's farming that food or yeah. who's hunter-gathering that food. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it could be quite interesting. Is Maybe if the, if the sort of isolationist bit, if you play that up as being like the males of Smurf Neblin society and the females who are obviously in charge of like their homes and the settlements. Mm. So if you extend that to say, well, they're in charge of feeding the settlement, so maybe while the males are isolationist, the females aren't so much... Because you could then spin that to say, oh, well, in the earlier editions, how come we didn't know about females? Well, assuming that the, the sort of viewpoint in the first edition Fiend Folio is from the surface races, which I don't think is too much of a leap, mm-hmm. you could say, well, maybe they bump into the males more often because the females are all busy, like, trading with other underdog races. They don't mm-hmm. come to the surface because they're like, what's up there that we want? Mm-hmm. So maybe that maybe that's the reason that they're, they're very rarely seen because they're like, yeah, the males are like mining minerals and like running into people and getting in trouble, but like we're actually like running the settlements and like organising mm-hmm. trade deals with like people further down in the underdark. So like we haven't got time to be like popping up to the surface <laughs> and doing all of this like bullshit that the males are up to. So yeah, and I quite like that because um, obviously we're seeing the drow in the underdark. They've got a very matriarchal society, but it's I mean sorry if you drow fans, but like. It never seems like very nuanced to me. It's like it's like females have loads of power and they're priestesses, males are soldiers. That's it. It's got a definite angry seventies feminism vibe about it, which is kind of a shame because it could have been better. Yeah, I've well, not really read any of the newer stuff. Maybe it improves with the editions. Yeah, Maybe we're no. just thinking about the second edition type stuff. Well, I, I, th- <laughs> I think you could use like the Smurf Neblin to do like a slightly more like nuanced portrayal of it because as it says in the fifth edition book they've got very set gender roles mm-hmm. for their society but I think you could as we're talking about it, you could expand that a little bit. We, it says in there that like the males are minors the females run the settlements but obviously that's not all they do it's like you know if you're a, yeah. if you're a man you don't just wake up and like mine until you need to sleep and then go out and mine some more and if you're a female you're not just like sweeping the house and like minding the mm-hmm. servants and whatever so I, I think having like having like the female deep gnomes as like the sort of the wheelers and dealers like the deal makers could be quite good maybe they're a bit more affable to other species so the fourth edition yep the player playable race version of it now we're getting into a bit more of their specific um, flavor yeah so again this is with it being presented as a playable race uh, you ignore difficult terrain uh, or earthen construction uh, your and dungeoneering is always a class skill for you and you have the stone camouflage power I could also see looking over here that um, it says they're of fey origin Mm-hmm. Now, this is something that's fairly standard in 4th edition because they introduced the idea of the Feywild and the Shadowfell, so like the Fairy Realm and like the Shadow sort of Death Realm. Mm-hmm. And in the Feywild, 
there's the fey dark which is like their equivalent of the underdark and most sort of like elves and some goblins and creatures like that all originally came from the fey wild so mm-hmm. it's like tying them all together and they're saying here yep the smurf neblin they originally come from the fey dark so again we get a description of them uh, talking about them living in cities underground talking about them being a bit isolationist mm-hmm. uh, however it has like a slightly different tone to it. The Deep Gnome's muted expressions convey a sense of dreariness to most outsiders, and certainly don't seem welcoming. Smurf Nablin act standoffish to newcomers and protect their community, but anyone who gains their trust quickly learns that they form close bonds of friendship. They focus on fulfilling their duties through hard work, either in the mines or around their settlement. In their off hours, they enjoy telling stories in the company of their family and neighbours. That's a nice little bit of extra detail in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just to sort of skip over the stuff we've already covered, it talks about their physical qualities, um, generally darker, gaunt bodies, very little body fat in this version, stand no more than three and a half feet tall. Uh, females are taller, males are stockier. Um I find it interesting you saying about the physical qualities where it says they almost appear like emaciated mm-hmm. in this version, whereas they're right pudgy little fuck fifth edition. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just find it interesting that like, they made that change to them. I mean, there's no real reason, but there you go. It also suggests that the uh, specific communities have their own specific appearance, which I assume is in relation to clothes. Uh, oh, but also to do with the local soil and how they're camouflaging themselves. Yeah, so it's like the, the, the stone camouflage they have mm-hmm. on their skin basically varies, which makes sense. Cause obviously, if you've got grey mm-hmm. skin and you like live in like a peat-heavy mm-hmm. environment, it's not going to be great for you, is it? Mm-hmm. So then there's a bit that I thought was quite interesting, which is the idea that their communities are so close-knit that they don't actually have, or they don't often use the words... I or my. Oh, right, it's okay. We. So it's more a group, our. a group thing. Okay. Uh, and it gives you a couple of, like, a little sidebar talking about this for if you're playing it as a player character and suggesting that maybe you steer away from it after a while. Yeah, and I can see here the example it gives is it says, instead of a person saying, I would like to purchase a hammer from you, a Smurf Neblin might instead say, we would like to purchase a hammer from you. And that's a, a little thing that's easy to do if you're a player. I mean, it'd take a while to get the hang of it, but it'll add a sort of like a slight difference to your character portrayal. So I really like that. That's quite cool. It also says when they do find out about these concepts, it takes them a while to learn that other creatures single out one person as distinct from their people as a whole. Yeah. Which does sort of harken back to that, like, uh, racial empathy thing that they Mm. had in some of the monster versions of it. Yeah, again, it's sort of implying it, though, rather than just sort of stating it, isn't it? That, That maybe it's more that they think of their people as a whole than they actually feel everything that every one of their people feel so are, are we basically saying that like deep gnomes have like achieved like the sort of communist ideal you know it's all like for the commune and all for the group and everyone's like equal or uh no <laughs> allow me to continue okay, okay go on then so it talks a bit about their history and basically it just says 
they don't have any written records and they don't tell outsiders their own myths. Uh, that nice and easily saves the authors having to come up with some creation myths there. Well done, crafty forethead authors. It's known that they lived among other gnomes and were still imprisoned by the... F- Sorry, when all... It's known that they lived among other gnomes when all were still imprisoned by the Fomorians. When the gnomes escaped their fetters, most went to the surface. The Smurf Neblin went deeper underground. <laughs> and then we get this whole bit about their society, which this paragraph reads to me as someone who's lived like near one of these dying mining towns oh, right, as okay. being very much about a similar sort of a place. And maybe that's just me always looking to break that fourth wall. It talks about how um, all... It talks about how their societies uh, organised into clans and how they spread their cities around the place. Um, Specialised engineers seek out large caverns that can cus- that can sustain the clan's population growth. Mm-hmm. And then other people move in, leaders claiming the more stable areas of the cavern, building complexes, and remaining members of the clan sort of choosing their location by order of priority so there is a very strict hierarchy in place ah right okay even even if it's not discussed it sort of makes you think of that clan we as being like the royal we see i've got to admit before we got to this page i was quite enjoying this like breakdown of the smurf nebbling (laughs) But because I was like, oh, you know, they're a bit different. There's something different going on. Oh, that's quite cool. They're elaborating it. Then it gets to this page, and it's like, basically, they're in clans like dwarves. They've got hierarchies like dwarves. They live underground and mine like dwarves. Let's face it, they knock off dwarves. Of all the treasure they gather, they cherish their children the most. And it says that they have some sort of like almost communal, increasing the population program larger families earning benefits the parents of six or more children are rarely impoverished which just feels like a dig at the benefit system to me (laughs) or possibly a a dig at like big mormon families or something like that you know are we on to the paragraph where the uh, where where the evil uh, ruler thaggy matcha like shuts their minds down (laughs) so we've also got this um bit of the uh, males working in the mining communities unless they are physically disabled or part of the political and religious structure uh, the women being the masters of the household venerated for their hard work uh, yeah, making them a cornerstone of life and then it mentions that they have a king and a queen to rule the towns doesn't imply that the king and the queen are married to each other it even mentions that some towns operate on a democratic principle (gasps) so i assume that there's like a female representative and a male representative and then it goes on to talk about their adventurers and the few people who like get to travel outside of the community okay and it gives you a little breakdown for each of the character classes and then it gives you some role-playing tips You're a team player. You appreciate strength in numbers. You know the depths better than anyone. And then there's this one at the end called Thanks for Noticing, which is kind of weird. And I'm just going to read it out. Mm -hmm. 
You go about your life with pride in your people, your lineage and your capabilities. You can't shake the feeling that you aren't quite good enough. Having deserted or being forced to leave your community and clan, no longer having a designated place in the social order, you might sense that you've lost your purpose. This feeling might lead you to apologise for simple errors or go beyond the call of duty to prove yourself. The simplest compliment could mean the world to you. Then you picked up your father's sword. And, <laughs> yeah, that just sounds like someone trying to like shoehorn a load of like, boring background into a character <laughs> to me. I'm not going to lie. The, 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 more, the more this bit's going on, the more I'm just like shoes dwarves. There's some interesting ideas, but like even like the language they use, like clans, stuff like that, seems to links back to dwarves. And I know sort of like gnomes are supposed to be related to dwarves in D and D, but it's like if you want to have a clan of underground people with a few bits of magic, have this sort of strange like sort of one for all and all for one sort of society, you could do that with dwarves. You don't really need a separate species to do it. Whereas Although they weren't as well defined in the earlier books, they, they felt more like a distinct species to me. Whereas the more they describe them, the more they seem to be getting similar to dwarves. It's like I'm half expecting you to turn to a paragraph and be like, it's a mark of triumph in their society to wear a giant fake beard and adopt a Scottish accent. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, and, uh, I'm a Smurf Neblin and I'm digging a hole. Just hasn't got quite the same meaning no, exactly. to it. You're not going to get a metal ballad out of that, are you? No. So... I know you were looking at gnomes in folklore. Yeah, so... Anything you want to add on there? Apparently the word gnome uh, comes from the Latin genomus, meaning earth dweller. They're often described as being similar to goblins or dwarves. That's like traditional um, mythological goblins or dwarves, not necessarily the D&D ones. Um in that sort of family of, you know, sort of like underground spirits, like knockers and people like that, mm-hmm. who who are sort of described as these half-spirit, half-elemental creatures who would often protect people in the mines. But, you know, if you didn't respect the land, they could also play dangerous tricks on you, or they might be responsible for cave-ins and stuff like that. They're described in legends as being the protectors of the classical elements of air, fire, water, and most importantly, earth. They're described as being responsible for protecting the treasures of the earth from humans. So that might be why they link into that. Oh, they've got a mad on for rubies and gems and mm-hmm. stuff like that. They're always described as being small and often described as wearing conical hats. So again, we've got the fishing rod red felt hat name going on there. <laughs> Apparently there's also some legends that say if they're exposed to the sunlight, they turn to stone. So rather like the um, the trolls in mm-hmm. Tolkien. See, I remember way back when I was a kid and one of my dad's friends was working at the coal mines in Swad before Maggie closed them down. And I remember him talking about how he liked to leave a jam sandwich at the door of the mines yeah. when he was on his way in so that the fairies in the mines would warn him if something bad was going to happen. And obviously I was about like three, four when he was telling us about this. I had no concept of what bad might happen apart from his job involved going into a dark, scary cave. Yeah. 
And I always quite liked the idea that he'd got a couple of fairies in the cave that were watching out for him because he gave him a jam sandwich. Yep. And it fascinates me how these myths sort of continue to evolve. Well, apparently in the 16th century, the alchemical student Parcelsus sort of split the elements into four different creatures that represented them mm-hmm. and gnomes are the ones that represented the the elements of earth along with the undine for water sylph for air and salamanders for fire mm-hmm. so in many ways it's actually the dwarves who are the newcomers because these old gnome myths have been around for ages whether you're calling them gnomes or knockers or just fairies in the mine they've been around for ages people have been telling and retelling telling and retelling and then along comes mr tolkien and he decides that he's going to call that particular group dwarves well yeah which is another name that was there for this type of fairy i mean obviously tolkien didn't invent the idea of like dwarves are around in sort of like scandinavian mythology before then popularised that term being used for that type yeah, that, of Yeah, that, that version of dwarves, yeah, he sort of popularised. But uh, I think, as we were saying, with the, a lot of these earlier myths, they're all sort of quite hazy around the borders. So you've got different types of like the same creature being referred to by different names, depending on what part of like the country or what country you come from. Uh, you've got... There might be very little difference between portrayals, but entirely different names. So I think obviously Tolkien and various other people have taken inspiration from like the gnomes and the knockers and stuff like that. And then, as you say, they've become popularised as dwarves. So sort of like when D and D were like, "Oh, we want to do gnomes," it's like a lot of this this sort of like real estate, if you will, has already been taken up by the dwarves. And I, I like the fact again in Fiendfolio, it almost feels like. The, the deep gnomes were just sort of dropped in as like, oh, we've got a bit of space to fill. Mm-hmm. What can we think of? Oh, the, oh, we've got underdark elves and underdark dwarves. Um, yeah, underdark gnomes. And that it seems like they've done their best in Fiend Folio to like, make them a little bit distinct. Mm-hmm. But then as the editions have got gone on, they've they've been trying to like mine that well for like mm-hmm. inspiration of how they can elaborate on them. But like every time they peer into that well of inspiration, there's just a little dwarf at the bottom going like, mm-hmm. I've, got, I've got this, mate, you're all right. Yeah, they, they definitely seem to have started off as more like, um, like the creatures from the descent. Yes, yeah. But with armour and perhaps a little bit more intelligence. Mm. And then they've developed into, as you say, separatist dwarf light. Yeah. Now, my hope for 4th edition, because obviously I was aware of like the whole sort of adding in the Feywild and this whole like Fey background, my hope was that with the Deep Gnomes in 4th edition, they were going to really like push that Fey thing and make them like more elemental and more sort of like spirit beings. But I think at the end of the day, because they're sort of making them playable characters, mm-hmm. they have to be on like a same level with other playable characters. You can only have so many like weird and wacky abilities. So again, they just come off like feeling like sort of like caffeine free dwarves basically. Mm-hmm. Which I think's a shame because looking at them in mythology and the knockers and stuff like that, um, which I I know we talked about in one of the old like Purple Worm episodes, there's a vast sort of diversity of these different legends. I think it's a shame they didn't lean on some of them a bit more. So, 
Imagine we're making a brand new campaign world. Yep. We're, we've literally just dropped the dice on the paper to draw around and make a map. Okay. And we're going to people that campaign world. Yep. Let's chuck out the dwarves and have these guys instead. Okay. How does that change our campaign world? It doesn't, because they're effectively dwarves. <laughs> and, and I'm being a bit facetious now, like, <laughs> listeners, as you can probably tell. But, like, I seriously believe that if you got rid of dwarves entirely, and you were like, right, we're just going to have deep gnomes. If you just took all the deep gnome stats and, like, said, oh, yeah, these are the dwarves in my case, no one would know the difference. Yeah. That, that, that is kind of their only real problems, yeah. I can see. I, mean, I, I They think... sound like a entertaining... Yeah, the, the, there's nothing. A couple of adventures. There's nothing wrong with them as they are. I think the only problem is they've sort of come late to the party, mm-hmm. and like everything that they do, there's already like another more iconic race that does it. Exactly. I think if you took away dwarves and you were like, we're just going to have deep gnomes, I think they'd work great and there'd be no problem with that. But the fact is, if you say to some, go up to someone and you go, Oh, that that fantasy race that like lives underground and like mines. Oh, what's the name again? No one's going to be like, "Oh, do you mean deep gnomes?" They're going to be like, "Oh, dwarves." Yeah, yeah. So I, I think in a way they've been a victim of like the dwarves' success, and I think this for gnomes in general, not mm-hmm. just deep gnomes, because I mean they're even described as being related to dwarves. So even the designers have had to go, "Yeah, these are a bit like dwarves." Mm-hmm. And they they tried to get away from it a little bit with the sort of like the tinker gnome idea. You know, the sort of like the slightly sort of like mad scientist sort of type, yeah, you know, cobbling together like strange artifacts. And that's grand if you've got like a sort of steampunk esque setting, but it doesn't really translate that well, in my opinion, mm-hmm. into like a traditional fantasy game. So they just feel like slight again, they just feel like slightly eccentric dwarves, yeah. So, I mean, I've got to say, my suggestion would be is take, take the stat blocks for deep gnomes and other types of gnomes and then just say. They're dwarves, but it's just like this particular clan of dwarf has this. So, like your deep, your deep dwarves, your deep gnomes, whatever you want to call them, that you can go like, oh, the Durgar, the deep gnomes, they're both just like separate clans that went underground and did their own thing, and they've developed in their own way. And you can still keep their background, you can keep their stats. And you've not got to go through the constant, like, when people go, oh, some dwarves, they'll look at, actually, they're not dwarves, they're like deep gnomes. You can just be like, yeah, they're dwarves, that's fine. And you can still use all the good stuff for deep gnomes, mm-hmm. various other gnomes. And you, and in my opinion, your campaign will not suffer for it one jot. Fair. So, on that bombshell, <laughs> that's been our episode on deep gnomes, or the we hope you've enjoyed it and that you get something out of it. If you've got anything you'd like to tell us about deep gnomes or why they're not just dwarves without beards, you can leave us a message. You can leave us a message on SpeakPipe. There'll be a link in the description of this show. Or you can send us an email to rdrpgpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've got any suggestions to, for episodes you'd like to see in the future, you can also get in touch with us there. We'll be putting up our Twitter poll shortly so that you can have a say in what monster we're going to cover next. So until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and keep gaming. Bye.